Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Raiders Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. So, John, it's your turn, and you picked a story for us. Why don't you tell us about it? I picked the story Symbols and Signs by Vladimir Nabokov. And why did you pick this? Well, I started off thinking I, I want to pick a Nabokov story just because I think it might be nice to talk about. So I was looking around for some of his stories, and I happened to find a list. It was claimed to be like the 10 stories you need to read, like 10 best 20th century stories. And this story was on it. And some other list about his Nabokov's top 10 stories was had this listed as the first one. And I was like, well, it's on these lists. Let's find out why it's so good. Had you read this before? I had not. I I was looking specifically for the podcast. Okay, cool. I read it and then I was like back and forth whether I was going to bring it in. And then I was like, okay, yeah, let's just do it. So do you have a section you want to read? I do. When they emerged from the thunder and foul air of the subway, the last dregs of the day were mixed with the streetlights. She wanted to buy some fish for supper, so she handed him the basket of jelly jars, telling him to go home. Accordingly, he returned to their tenement house, walked up to the third landing, and then remembered he had given her his keys earlier in the day. In silence, he sat down on the steps and in silence rose when, some ten minutes later, she came trudging heavily up the stairs, smiling wanly and shaking her head in deprecation of her silliness. They entered their two-room flat and he at once went to the mirror, straining the corners of his mouth apart by means of his thumbs. With a horrible mask-like grimace, he removed his new, hopelessly uncomfortable dental plate. He read his Russian-language newspaper while she laid the table. Still reading, he ate the pale vittles that needed no teeth. She knew his moods and was also silent. When he had gone to bed, she remained in the living room with her pack of soiled playing cards and her old photograph albums. Across the narrow courtyard, where the rain tinkled in the dark against some ash cans, windows were blandly alight, and in one of them a black-trousered man, with his hands clasped under his head and his elbows raised, could be seen lying supine on an untidy bed. She pulled the blind down and examined the photographs. As a baby, he looked more surprised than most babies. A photograph of a German maid they had had in Leipzig and her fat-faced fiancé fell out of a fold of the album. She turned the pages of the book. Minsk, The Revolution, Leipzig, Berlin, Leipzig again, a slanting house front, badly out of focus. Here was the boy when he was four years old, in a park, shyly, with puckered forehead, looking away from an eager squirrel, as he would have from any other stranger. Here was Aunt Rosa, a fussy, angular, wild-eyed old lady who had lived in a tremulous world of bad news, bankruptcies, train accidents, and cancerous growths, until the Germans put her to death, together with all the people she had worried about. The boy, age six, that was when he drew wonderful birds with human hands and feet, and suffered from insomnia like a grown-up man. His cousin, now a famous chess player, the boy again, aged about eight, already hard to understand, afraid of the wallpaper in the passage, afraid of a certain picture in a book, which merely showed an idyllic landscape with rocks on a hillside and an old cartwheel hanging from one branch of a leafless tree. Here he was at ten, the year they left Europe. She remembered the shame, the pity, the humiliating difficulties of the journey, and the ugly, vicious, backward children he was with in the special school where he had been placed after they arrived in America. And then came a time in his life coinciding with a long convalescence after pneumonia when those little phobias of his, which his parents had stubbornly regarded as the eccentricities of a prodigiously gifted child, hardened, as it were, into a dense tangle of logically interacting illusions, making them totally inaccessible to normal minds. 
All this and much more she had accepted, for, after all, living does mean accepting the loss of one joy after another, not even joys in her case, mere possibilities of improvement. She thought of the recurrent waves of pain that for some reason or other she and her husband had had to endure, of the invisible giants hurting her boy in some unimaginable fashion, of the incalculable amount of tenderness contained in the world, of the fate of this tenderness, which is either crushed or wasted or transformed into madness, of neglected children humming to themselves an unswept corners of beautiful weeds that cannot hide from the farmer so what a crazy story (laughs) i spent a lot of time after i read it trying to find criticism online that would tell me what the hell i had read what's going on (laughs) yeah and mostly i was trying to figure out what i had missed right because i tried to think about it for a little bit and then i gave up and quickly learn that there's no um, consensus about the point here. There's a couple popular theories, but I think the point is not to really know, which is always frustrating. But one of the things that I did come across in a lot of those summaries of this piece was that the writing itself is great either way you look at it. And um, I think we can often forget that, you know, if you were to ask me about this story in, in a couple months, I might tell you, yeah, what was, what was up with that? But I might not remember how well, how, how great the writing was like sentence to sentence. And you read some great lines there. And so maybe I'm jumping ahead to the conclusion here, but like my only takeaway for this is that like, I don't know what happened. It wasn't satisfying for me that way, but I was thrilled to have read it and um, I enjoyed it all along. So there's probably something to be said just for how you execute something. Right. And, and if it's beautifully done. That is, that's why I wanted to bring the Bokoff in because he is one of those unique wordsmiths and he has such an amazing ability to, and this English is like his, I don't know, 50th language that he learned and his ability to write in English in such a evocative way with such facility is astonishing. I've read a couple of his books, but I never read many of his short st- or any of his short stories. So I had to, like I said, look for one, but that's why I wanted to bring in Nabokov because I was like, he's just so good. I want to talk about it. And then this one came up. So yeah, I absolutely, the meter and rhythm of the sentences, the word choice, the words that he chooses seem to be like, no one else would have thought of that word in that place, but it's the only word that works in certain places it's just astonishingly good and it has uh from the beginning a definite mood to it which is i don't know if this is accurate but hearing you read that section again and just like kind of thinking about it afterwards i just pictured everything being like gray like a sad drizzly day with these old people that are kind of like fading away, but they're stuck in their routine and they've had kind of a devastating day, but it's really just one in thousands for them, which she kind of indicates in that passage that you read. And they're day in and day out dealing with their son whose mental health is as baffling to them as it is to the reader by the end. Cause you don't really, you don't really know what's going to happen with him or if something did happen. That last scene is just kind of open for interpretation, but it's, it's no less exciting not really understanding how it lands yeah yeah absolutely he can paint a picture definitely Mm -hmm. and it starts uh like in motion too right they're getting on i think a bus 
uh, a subway train. And that's not the first paragraph, but it starts in motion in terms of telling you that immediately they're about to go bring their son a birthday gift, but they're having trouble because he's not all there. And uh, then everything goes downhill from the time that they get on the bus that day. It's interesting that basically what they try to bring him a birthday present. The subway stops, it stalls out and other things happen. So they arrive late to the hospital or the ward or wherever he's being held. And they, um, the staff tells his parents, oh, he can't, he's having an episode. So it'd be a bad idea for you guys to walk into that. So they go home, they take the present with them. And then, you know, it's just, okay, she's going to go shopping. He waits because he forgot his key, like that section I read. And then they go in their, their little apartment and uh, just do things, look at pictures. Eat, and then the phone rings three times and it's the wrong number. And that's the story. Obviously, we're being told this story through this particular day because it is significant, whether that's because it was his birthday or because so many things went wrong on that day or because of the phone calls there at the end themselves. But you also kind of get the sense throughout that, especially in that section that you read where she says something like, says like she knew his moods and so she was quiet too. And so she's kind of, we're learning through her that this is also like an off day for him. You know, the dad hasn't really said why he had such a bad time of it, but he seems to be upset about not being able to visit. And yeah, you could tell it's just, it's off for everyone. We don't get like a full sense of like how bad it is in a grant in the grand scheme of things, but, but it's like an off day. And then the thing that's interesting about this is I think Nabokov is said to have told, I think he wrote it in a letter maybe, that this story has is two stories, one on the surface and one beneath. And then every, he never told anybody what the other story is. So everybody's trying to figure out what the other story is. So it's called symbols and signs, right? So that we have this sense that everything in here is important. All these like little symbols, little signs of what might be happening under the surface. And we're supposed to guess at it. But he also describes the problem, the illness that is that the son has as a referential mania. So it says the patient imagines that everything happening around him is a veiled reference to his personality and existence. So he's looking for patterns representing in some awful way messages that he must intercept. Everything is a cipher and of everything he is the theme. It's kind of suggesting that I think this is one of those things that critics, a lot of critics say is the actual point is we're left looking at all these symbols and signs and trying to piece together a story. But in reality, we're suffering from the same delusion that the sun is suffering from by trying to piece those together, which is, you know, possible, I guess. Yeah, uh, all that makes sense. But I didn't come up with that myself. I had to read that in some of the criticism, the idea that (laughs) his objective here was to make us feel the way this sun feels, right? Right, where everything is like confounding him somehow and like really stressful and you're thinking about it long afterwards but maybe there's no definite answer to it I didn't go crazy after I read that I was like all right I'm all done <laughs> this guy's playing a joke on me I'm not gonna think about it anymore but I do like that if that's what he is going for because I am definitely of the mind where unless it is like crystal clear first of all we can't know what his intent was and second of all that's all us making it up you know like if it's not obvious then you're interpreting it at some level and that is or is not what they intended so don't try so hard like it's probably not there yeah i agree with that my own um work in literary criticism is i don't think that meaning like finding the literary meaning of something i think that's a relatively useless thing to do because fiction gives you an experience and the experience 
can have infinite applicability, but that applicability is always based on the reader and um, where the reader finds resonance with the story. And it, that means it's not a feature of the story. It's a feature of the reader. So you're not learning anything about the story by applying it to something else and trying to uncover some hidden message that you can discern in it. Right. So when I read it, I didn't think about it in those terms. And then I was like, why is this considered the best story ever? And I had to look it up and be like, oh, because there's supposedly something we can dig out of it, but no one has been able to dig anything out of it. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if if he really is making some kind of like social commentary on the criticism process, then I'm all for it. But other than that, like, I hope that's it because I don't really care for any of the other explanations if I wasn't able to get it right. This the story might not be for me then. It's just it's just over my head, you know. But yeah, I mean, not to get off on a tangent, but I remember just in high school that was the procedure, right? Like you read Jane Eyre and you really like Jane Eyre, and then you got to read why you missed everything that you thought you got and why you didn't really understand the story the way you thought you understood the story, even though you read it and loved it. So it didn't ruin books for me, but it made me think that everything was some kind of a game where there were symbols and signs and you did have to work really, really hard. But I think criticism is only, I think if it does something well, it's commenting on like the social norms at the time or why the writing is like a product of its time or its author instead of some secret magic code being like spooled out for you. It's like, if you want to tell me why it's interesting that Jane Eyre was written when it was about women then and, you know, in England and all all that, well, all that meant, that's great. But if you're going to like tell me that I missed some theme because I missed like a word on page 40, then I'm I'm out. Yeah, I, I went beyond um, high school for that. And, you know, my master's is in English literature, my PhD incorporated features of literary critical theory or didn't incorporate them. I had to encounter them and uh, try to find an argument that undermined them, which I believe I did. Um, So I've been steeped in this stuff over the years. And I think that, like I said, the point of literature is to enjoy it, is to have an experience. You read read a story like this and we're right there with these two characters experiencing their day. And yeah, if you wanted to, you could spend some time trying to figure out how how it's speaking to some deeper meaning. And that's great. Like Faulkner talks about um, writing about the human heart and and conflict with itself. It's the only thing worth writing and figuring out what applying that to your life as a way to um, manage your own, the way you think about life is a good thing because this is what helps build empathy. That's why fiction builds empathy is because we get to live all these other lives and then learn from them by reading. But that doesn't mean that's the hidden meaning in the story. The meaning of a story is the experience it gives you, not some message the author was trying to bury in it. And I was thinking about this before recording and it made me think of uh, there are stories like um, like Gulliver's Travels. There's a bunch of details in those stories that can be tied directly to Jonathan Swift's like contemporary Britain. And he's making commentary on the politics and culture of the time, which when I read it, I have no idea. I have to look at the footnotes to even have an idea that that's happening. But I can still get an experience out of it, right? Because it's fiction and I can still enjoy it as a story that I can then apply to my own situation if I if I want to make those details line up with something that I'm familiar with. So I don't think, you know, it doesn't matter whether the author wanted me to get a message or not. It's like, I'm just going to enjoy the characters. Right. Do you think then that there's 
that like is it accurate then to kind of say or that years ago hundreds of years ago when people were writing things like Jane Eyre that the style of the day was to have like these high-minded themes like hidden oh I have no idea yeah it just it just feels like that was revered like there was supposed you couldn't just enjoy it there had to be something else because I do think certain authors did intentionally obscure some of these things I think that it wasn't that they were trying to bury some hidden message I think that they were interested in an idea and they, they use characters to kind of work with an idea. You know, like something really simple, like uh, A Christmas Carol. Yeah. It's about greed and, and how, how to live your life as a, uh, you know, that a life of uh, generosity is a better life than a life of stinginess. But that's not, he doesn't have to say that. You just get to experience the way Scrooge goes through his night and reflects on his life through the, the three ghosts and then changes at the end. And you're like, you know what? He is better off now. Yeah, that's a better way to de- describe what they're doing doing right like using characters in a story to illustrate a concept that they're already thinking about versus like inserting a concept into a story so that we have to figure out what they're talking about I guess I mean like it seems as if fiction years ago the intent was like that it had to have some kind of a meaning that you had to be smart enough to get right they're not trying to like obscure it but like they wanted it to be this kind of lofty endeavor it feels like some fiction reads to me that way and my only comparison is that when we have stories nowadays that are kind of hitting you on the head with these themes it almost feels like metafiction to be so blunt about your intent i don't think it was ever in vogue to bury things like that i think that our english the way english literature is taught sometimes we're led to believe that that's what was going on but i don't think it ever really was that makes sense i mean if you go back to read the odyssey you know homer's odyssey we think of it now as oh the story of odysseus going and visiting visiting all these crazy lands. But the story is actually about Odysseus meeting people. And each time he meets a new group of people, the focus is always on how they greet him and whether they're civilized people by the way that they greet him, how they treat a guest, how they treat a stranger. And when he gets back to um, Ithaca, his land has changed and they don't treat him very well. And that's part of what we, we know that he's going to bring civilization back to them. And this isn't like buried in there. This is just the situation that is being described is Odysseus arrives on a shore. Oh, there's somebody over there. Here's what they do. And do they say, hey, you're a stranger. I'm going to invite you in and we're going to do the uh, cultural normal thing in inviting you in. Or are we going to do something aberrant? Are we going to do something that's not civilized, not the right way to, to treat someone? And the various peoples that he meets react in different ways. And like you get that out of it, not by digging into it. You just get it by living through the experience that Odysseus is living through. It's like, man, these people are crazy. They're not treating him very well at all. Yeah. I'm guessing too, there's an element of this where if you're reading something that wasn't written in your time, it's harder for you to read and understand on some level. And that can become part of it. That's why in English class, there's like, all right, here's a history of England so we can understand this (laughs) story. Like you're going to read Gulliver's Travels. I'm going to have to tell you everything you need to know about like, what is it? 17th century (laughs) Britain? (laughs) Uh, At that point, it doesn't seem worth it. Anyway, I feel like I've gone on this tangent, but it's all, it's all in keeping with what seems to be the takeaway from other critics of this piece. But I do want to just like kind of look at some of the language here because, you know, we talked about how this is like so enjoyable to read and how it sets a tone and everything. So let me find some of these lines here that I liked. Well, there was the one bit that you read here talking about like how his mental illness kind of solidified and it says... 
And then came a time in his life coinciding with a long convalescence after pneumonia when those little phobias of his, which his parents had stubbornly regarded as the eccentricities of a prodigiously gifted child, hardened, as it were, into a dense tangle of logically interacting illusions, making them totally inaccessible to normal minds. That felt to me like kind of the section that I was reading toward when I was trying to figure out what exactly was wrong with him and and where it went wrong. But that's the best kind of answer we get. And the way that it's told is it's beautifully told, but it's also probably like the closest medical (laughs) description, right? It's just this happened and then this happened. But at some point that became the norm for him. And then like the way it's described, it doesn't seem like a diagnosis. It doesn't seem like a black and white. It seems like this like gray slide into something right this tangle hardened and that was like such a great visual you just got the sense that something like that had probably happened for his parents too where they slid into a routine like the one that we're seeing here and and that became the routine right he comes home he takes his dental plate out he reads the paper she diddles and makes the dinner and and you know it's just that's what they do they couldn't tell you how it happened either so i thought i don't know lines like that were what kind of made it interesting yeah absolutely i underline that line as well because it was just so I don't know perfectly written he also at the end here I just remember liking this section too that just it doesn't give anything away I mean we already kind of described what happens but it's the dad sitting at the table and says the birthday present stood on the table while she poured him another glass of tea he put on his spectacles and re-examined with pleasure the luminous yellow green and red little jars his clumsy moist lips spelled out their eloquent labels apricot grape beach plum You can picture that, right? At this point, the phone is rung twice now with the wrong number. So you're anticipating this. You see that there's like only so many words left. You're wondering if we're going to get some kind of conclusion. Then it just like slows down and the dad is just like contemplating these little jellies. And um, I don't know, there's something so nice about that little scene there. And the the way, you know, we slow down because he slows down for us and he shows us each individual color and each individual flavor. And I don't know if I was going to get anything out of this aside from like, we don't know who's calling and if it is a wrong number or what, that part right there and and where it is in the story, when we're all clamoring to get to the point, it was kind of like, here's two people who on the surface seem real sad and they have a real bummer of a situation with their son, but the dad can kind of look at these jellies for a second and like enjoy looking at them, right? Like he's finding beauty, just like the way the mother talked about life being joys that you lose, right? It was nice. Yeah. It's an interesting um, thing when a story can slow us down and, and let us enjoy a moment like that. And such a otherwise boring one, you know? Yeah. It's like he's just reading labels. And if someone said, hey, do you want to watch somebody read labels? He'd be like, no. <laughs> but we're into it when we get there. Right. Yeah, I thought that was nice. So should we talk about our takeaways for this one? Yes, let's talk about our takeaways. Okay, so I'm going to go back to what I said at the beginning, which like I said, maybe I was kind of jumping ahead, but this is a story where we don't necessarily need to know whether or not the author had an exact plot in mind when he wrote it. He could be playing a major prank on us still. Yeah. You know, maybe he threw in those phone calls and they're not supposed to go anywhere. Maybe he lied about there being a story within a story, whatever it is. Like if I need to hear all of this, 
this about his mindset after the fact, you know, did I or did I not enjoy the story at face value, right? Like, what if I don't get to hear from this author or read the literary criticism? So my takeaway is kind of like, I didn't fully get it. I didn't know exactly what happened, but he still achieved that tone. He still achieved like this weird melancholy mood. I still got a glimpse into the lives of characters that I otherwise wouldn't have. And I enjoyed it. And and I was reading kind of like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And even though I didn't know what ended up happening, like this is a story where I'll remember kind of probably that feeling and maybe like little details like the phone call and the jellies and yeah, whatever happened with that. But I enjoyed it. And so my takeaway is just kind of like, if you're enjoying writing it, and we talk about this too, this is kind of unrelated, but like if, if you enjoy like thinking about the concept, it doesn't have to be this like perfect thing to imagine that someone else might enjoy reading it, right? Or you don't, you can like approach a subject without having your own conclusion yet, right? And you can kind of discover that because the premise is exciting to you. Maybe that's all this guy had when he wrote it. There's something kind of unfinished about my feeling about the piece, but I do know what's accurate is that I, I liked it. So do with that what you will. Yeah, I like that. I, I When I finished it, I didn't care about any hidden meanings, like I said before, mm-hmm. and I still enjoyed reading it. And I think... Uh, I think that's good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a specific takeaway? Yes, I do. So one of the things that makes it feel like there is a hidden meaning in here is a lot of this stuff, it's called symbols and signs. You're, maybe you're supposed to be keyed up for like symbolism. And so there's like a point where uh, she drops a bunch of playing cards and photographs onto the floor and it says bending with difficulty. She retrieved some playing cards and a photograph or two that had slipped to the floor. The knave of hearts, the nine of spades, the ace of spades, the maid Elsa and her bestial bow. He returned in high spirits, saying in a loud voice, I have it all figured out, etc. Those feel like if you're reading as a person who wants to figure out what the underlying hidden message is or the, the second story that he's hidden in here somehow, like I'm going to make a chart and on one part of that chart, I can write playing cards. And these are the, like the, the name of hearts, the nine of spades, ace of spades. What do those have in common? What, what's the meaning there? But as you're reading it, I think they just kind of blur by because she, it's just a list. And this made me think about the way that we feel about details is always based on the way that character interacts with those details like what is the emotional valence for the character of any detail in the story so our emotional reaction to a detail is going to be determined by the character's actions and interactions and their emotional reactions to a detail so if she had looked at the ace of spades and like freaked out we would have been like okay there's something about the ace of spades but she just picks it up and like just notes it and moves on so that's my takeaway is when we're thinking about details i know a long time ago in a previous episode we talked about significant significant details and how a good story, every detail is significant. And then it's like, how do you figure out whether they're significant? And part of that is whether or not they have emotional valence for a character, whether or not they have a meaning for the character, not necessarily for the literary critic, but for the character. And and not just for the character, maybe for the setting or maybe for some other story element, but that's what gives details their importance and significance is when there's something attached to them that embeds them in the story as 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 something important. Yeah, like the setting or the mood, right? Like yeah. if it all adds to the overall effect, whether or not it, the character has a, an emotional attachment to like the color of something. Yeah. <laughs> I remember talking about this in the workshop at one point and I wasn't able to articulate that sentiment, but I was able to like look at whoever it was that was sharing this story that they had written and say like, you know, this detail about like the color of the girl's dress doesn't matter so much to me, like cut this, right? And it's easier to know as a reader, like because... 
if you're doing it right, each of those details is like flagging you, right? It's like alerting its presence. It's there for a reason and we're, we're waiting for that reason. So it's easy to pick out after the fact, like, wait, where did this detail come from? Why did I need it? Didn't add anything for me. But you're right, as a writer, it's a little harder. And so that's the best way to think about it. Like, does this matter overall? Yeah, and I know that, you know, when you're starting off a story, we get these in the workshop all the time. The first two pages is just like, yeah. what are you describing? <laughs> I don't know what's, why Why do I care about this fence or whatever it is? Then uh, those are things you guys got to cut. But, you know, to get into a story, you start figuring out, okay, what is, what am I seeing? What am I thinking about? What's, what's in this story? Right. And then eventually go back, you slice all that out because it's not important. But we get it in the workshop a lot because of that, because people are trying to find their footing. But once it gets going, usually the details settle down. All right. Well, thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.